Philip Anthony Albertelli, and this is The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. And this is episode 93. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download at www.audibletrial.com slash The Week in Doubt. Over 100,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. I'm not sure how much longer I'll be doing these Audible promos. They're proving to be rather fruitless. You only get paid if someone signs up for a um, trial membership, and that hasn't happened yet, as humbling as it is to admit. Uh, But anyway, on to today's topic. Every once in a while, I find myself questioning my unbelief. Nothing wrong with that. It's good to question. In fact, I recently heard someone say, and I'm not sure who to attribute the quote to, but they said, our greatest gift is our questioning minds. And I suppose that leads to yet another question. Are those questioning minds a gift from a higher power or simply a byproduct of evolution? Um, I think you can guess what side I come down on. But when I do find myself questioning my unbelief, I usually try to objectively weigh both sides of the scales and inevitably end up being strongly reminded of just why I'm a non-believer in the first place. And that's what today's episode is all about. I want to give a short list of the reasons I doubt the existence of a higher power, both for my benefit and hopefully for your edification as well. And before we get started with the list, um, I'd like to address a question that some of you may be asking. Why is he questioning his unbelief in the first place? Well, as the host of an atheist-slash-skeptical podcast, I want to make sure that the show doesn't become stale. And I want to make sure, for both our benefit, that it never comes to the point where I'm just mindlessly throwing atheist talking points at you. And perhaps on a more personal level... Um, I was raised in a religious home, and although my reason and perhaps a natural skepticism led me away from literal belief, I still sometimes, when I see how many religious people there are in the world, when I see how many people in high office, our leaders, still express strong religious belief, or at least feign religious belief for the sake of their constituents, I ask, what if I'm wrong? What if people are right to be religious and there's something I'm missing or not seeing? But I think a little reevaluation is good from time to time. So without further ado, on to the list of reasons I don't believe. First up, and perhaps the biggest in my opinion, is the man-made nature of religion. We can see looking at the world's religions that, although they may have some similarities, they contradict one another and often internally contradict themselves. For instance, Judaism is the mother religion of Christianity, but the two disagree on the question of the Messiah, one believing he's already come, the other Judaism believing he's yet to arrive. And if we look at the Judeo-Christian Bible, we see internal contradictions. It seems to me that the average Christian who isn't a learned theologian or apologist seems to assume the Bible is a single work, maybe two if we divide it between the Old and New Testament, written by a single author, perhaps even written by the hand of God himself, when in fact both the Old and New Testaments are anthologies, cobbled together from many works written by many different, and I imagine all too early earthly authors. The Old Testament 
contradicts itself in the sense that it contains multiple accounts of the same events, such as two different accounts of creation and two different accounts of the flood narrative, which even disagree on the number of animals aboard the ark. These multiple and often contradictory accounts are referred to by biblical scholars as doublets. And on the subject of the flood narrative, we can see that it has an earlier parallel in the Mesopotamian story known as the Epic of Gilgamesh. In fact, it would seem that just as Christianity arose out of Judaism, that Judaism most likely arose out of earlier polytheistic beliefs. Within the New Testament, there is, of course, not one account of Jesus' life, but four different and sometimes contradictory accounts. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are referred to as, as the synoptic gospels, meaning to see alike, since they have more in common with one another than they do with the gospel of John. One of the main differences between John and the synoptics is the fact that John has Jesus dying on a different day. This was most likely so the author of John could symbolically represent Jesus' crucifixion and death as a paschal sacrifice. In John, Jesus doesn't eat a Passover meal, but in a sense he is a Passover meal, the lamb that dies for the sins of the world. The very identity of the gospel writers remains something of a matter of debate. Traditionally, it's thought that two of the gospel writers, John and Matthew, were among the original twelve apostles, while Luke and Mark were later apostolic followers who didn't know Jesus personally. However, an opposing mainstream scholarly view is that at least some of the Gospels were written anonymously and simply attributed to certain apostles. Although the given dates of authorship often differ among scholars, it's safe to say the Gospels were written decades after the death of Christ, and furthermore, the earliest complete versions that have been discovered date back to only the 4th century AD or CE. The Gospels themselves don't seem to be intended to be taken as journalistic accounts, but are rather accounts meant to convey a higher truth and tailor-written for specific communities. Some events in the Gospel narratives may be more allegorical than historical, such as the so-called slaughter of the innocents, the story of how the Holy Family flees to Egypt to avoid the wrath of Herod. This story was most likely intended to draw a symbolic parallel between Moses and Jesus. The Holy Family's fleeing from an infanticidal monarch in the New Testament mirrors the experience of the infant Moses sent adrift in a reed basket to escape a similar decree made by the Pharaoh. The versions of the Bible we have today are essentially translations of translations, susceptible to all the usual errors that may take place or be overlooked during the translation or editing process. And at least one story may even have been added later, the famous Christian tale of Jesus and the woman taken into adultery, in which he saves a woman from stoning, is not to be found in the original Greek text. I suppose my point with all this is that since religious texts are so clearly man-made and at times so clearly contradictory, how can we take them in and of themselves to be evidence of God's existence? I suppose another one of my reasons for doubting God's existence would be the problem of evil or the existence of suffering. I suppose for the sake of brevity, I'll conflate the two. No one can deny the fact that there is all sorts of evil and suffering in the world. I sometimes hesitate to use the word evil because of its spiritual connotations, but I prefer using it for the most grievous of cruelties. 
Whether we're talking about man's inhumanity, the man killing, raping, genocide, warfare, or natural disasters, tsunamis, earthquakes, tornadoes, at times hundreds, sometimes thousands of real live human beings just like you and me, quickly wiped out by Mother Nature with the ease of someone stepping on an anthill. Uh, let's not forget disease, horrific birth defects, etc. But there's certainly no dearth of horror and suffering in the world. Most of us, whether we're non-believers or people of faith have trouble trying to understand how a good God could supposedly allow such things to befall his creations. I suppose the best a believer might come up with is free will, at least as far as man's inhumanity to man is concerned. Or worse yet, they might bring up original sin, the vulgar idea that suffering exists because of the transgression of two people in a garden. I'm referring to Adam and Eve, of course. Even if one was to believe in such a myth, why would a good God, a God worth worshipping, subject future generations to suffering and misery because of the transgressions of two of their ancient ancestors. I sometimes like to play devil's advocate against myself to test the merit of my own viewpoints, and the best I've ever been able to come up with to possibly explain suffering allowed by a good God might be that it's some kind of boot camp for the soul, or it gives us the ability to be more thankful for the good things. But even following that argument, it's still hard to reconcile how a good God would allow something like a baby born with a monstrous birth defect. Often people will bring up the example of the Holocaust, and apologists will say, free will. God didn't murder all those people, the Nazis did. But even then, if God is omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent, wouldn't he be aware of the flawed and sometimes wicked nature of his creations before even creating them? Wouldn't he be able to foresee all the awful suffering they might inflict on one another? Couldn't he have done some kind of cosmic tweaking and made a kinder, gentler species? Ah, uh, that reminds me, the horror of the food chain. Nature reddened tooth and claw. As an animal lover, albeit a hypocritical one, I still eat meat. I have trouble reconciling the idea of life feeding on life with the existence of a good God. And I should mention that not all Christians believe in free will. Check out the grim doctrine of predestination, embraced by some denominations such as the Calvinists. The idea that from the get-go, God's already figured out who's going to be saved and who's marked for eternal damnation. Lastly on my list, I suppose I'll include lack of evidence of the supernatural. I've been on this earth for quite some time now, and not once have I seen a ghost, an apparition, an angel, or devil. Never have I seen someone make a supernatural claim that couldn't be debunked. Whether we're talking about poltergeist activity, communication with the dead, or some other sordid parlor trick. Lots of people have weird stories that they whip out now and then, but as I recently discussed with Chris Weber, it usually all boils down to the willful suspension of disbelief. I'm not saying you have to believe in ghosts to believe in God, but if you're going to believe in things like angels and gods, the dearth of supernatural evidence certainly doesn't help. Um, well, I hope I didn't bum you out if you're not already a non-believer. But anyway, I think I'm going to call this episode a wrap. And before I do the usual plugs, I'd like to apologize. Last week's outro was a little sloppy, and I think I absentmindedly mentioned the Facebook page twice. But speaking of that, as you probably already know, you can like the show on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, subscribe or review the show on iTunes or Podbean. You can also listen on Stitcher now, and if you feel generous, you can donate to the show's upkeep by using the PayPal widget on the Weekendell Podbean page. All right, as always, thanks for listening. 